This is where I'm singing the outro. Do 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 do. I don't know that was something. I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy that audio. And today is our pilot episode, so we're going to talk about ourselves, our experience with translation, and then we're going to get into all the juicy topics that there are in the world of translation language services. So to start with, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Peter Argendizo, and I'm the founder at Argo Translation. That's located in the Chicago area. Actually, we're, we're in Glenview. Represent. And uh, I've been doing uh, this work now for about 25 years. I was previously a project manager at a medical device manufacturer. And as you can imagine, um, there's some great stories to tell after doing this work for 25 years. And hopefully we get to some of those topics. And really the aim is to uh, better arm buyers of translation with uh, a bit of knowledge so they go into a purchase um Without being blind, let's just say that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that it has a lot to do um, with helping people to trust us, you know, a little better or trust the translation industry better because I think that a lot of times it can be a little uh, of a black box. And so I think it'd be great if we can just sit down here and tell people really what goes on behind the scenes in a translation company and in the translation world. And that actually leads me into the etymology I prepared for the day. I'll, that'd I'll, be great, but I think you should talk about yourself. I first. should probably talk about you know, myself. We, we need to know I, who, you, who are you. I built such a good segue. All right. So <laughs> uh, for myself, my name is Patrick Mosley. Uh, I have a master's in translation and interpreting from the University of Illinois at the Center for Translation Studies there. Go CTS. And uh, I am a project manager, and I also do some translation on the side. So I have less experience in the world of translation. I mean, 25 years is hard to keep up with, but uh, I'm... That just means I'm old. Uh, I wasn't going to say it, but you did. <laughs> uh, but the point is that um, I'm eager to learn and I'm eager to ask you all sorts of questions and also have a fair bit of knowledge about translation that I can contribute to. Sounds great. Patrick, how about that etymology now? So I was talking about trust and it made me think, do you know, do you have a side table in your dining room? I do actually. What do you do? You, do you have a special name for it? Do you call it anything? No, I don't have a name for it. Oh, okay. It has a lot of uh, <laughs> Italian liqueurs on it, is what it is. Oh, has. see, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, are you familiar with the word credenza? Yes, absolutely. All right. So, what what is a credenza? Boy, I guess I just always thought of it as a side table, or you you hear of it as a uh, in an office that might be a table where you store things, right? It's sure. Off to the side. Do you have any background with the Italian language? A little bit, yes. I should note that Peter is fluent in Italian. <laughs> well, what if I told you that credenza was an Italian word originating in 1883, and it comes from the same word as credence, and it means belief or trust. Really? Yeah, and the reason it does is because back in the day, um, when poisoning was still a big issue, fancy rich people would have people taste test their food at a side table, 
so that they could trust their food afterwards. So that activity was referred to as a credenza or a credence. And so they would have someone eat it, see that it wasn't poisoned, and then King Joffrey would be able to <laughs> freely and happily go ahead and enjoy his meal. That's, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm really excited that you started with a, a term or a word that has really Italian roots. Thank you for doing that. Oh, anytime. Prego. <laughs> so there are a million things to talk about in the world of translation. That's why we have a whole podcast for it. But I think there was one thing that we wanted to talk about that uh, you had some particular thoughts on. What is an issue that clients always ask about when they're buying translation? Well, I think one of the most, I guess, misunderstood topics is that of translation memory in our world. And uh, there are many of the buyers... That's Google Translate, right? No, absolutely <laughs> <Is it> not. <laughs> <laughs> but some people think that that's the function, right? I, I think that there are those that are really in two camps, that they sort of have a loose understanding of translation memory, mm-hmm. don't under- necessarily understand how it works or how it helps them, and those that are completely oblivious to it. So even in this day and age when translation memory technology has been around for so long, I think you still see people that don't have an understanding of how it can help them. Or we even see buyers that come to us and don't even realize it exists and are likely paying for repetitive content over and over again. Sure. Um, so just for people who maybe know nothing and have never even tried to get a quote for translation or are completely outsiders, what would you say in, ooh, I'll make it tough, in 10 words, what is translation memory? Ooh, that is tough. That is words. tough. And you have okay. to use all 10, too, or else it's not fun. <laughs> well, I don't... Okay, that's assuming I can count that high. Uh, so, translation memory in 10 words. I, I think I might try to... Maybe I can even do it in less. Um, intelligent, language-based database for reuse of Red translation. Seven. Okay, I'm stopping right. there. We got it, eight. That's fine. <laughs> um, I'll give you the last two. Super helpful. So <laughs> There you go. Uh, yeah, so if I can unpack that a little bit, um, what you're saying is that it is essentially, I guess the two-word explanation translation memory might even be simpler. It just is a, a database that stores previous translations, and then when you want to translate something new, then it will keep track of all the things that have already translated. Exactly. Uh, um, a really great way to think of it is that it's, uh, you know, the term that the industry tends to use is CAT, CAT tool, mm-hmm. so computer-assisted translation. And it is not Google Translate. It is not machine translation. But essentially, all it really is is a smart database that sits alongside the translator. Mm-hmm. And as they're committing sentences to a job, they're being mm-hmm. memorized in a smart database. And there's a whole host of tools uh, that are used out there. We use WordBee, which is a great tool, and it's cloud-based. But essentially what it does is it memorizes that translation. And then when a project comes in, we can run an analysis and Mm -hmm. say, okay, 80% of this document is identical to previous work. Mm -hmm. So then not only is that work discounted, but then it's also committed or brought forward from the old job. Mm-hmm. And it takes less time. We're more consistent. I mean, that's really the keys to translation memories. You know, what does it allow? How does it help the client? Mm-hmm. It helps in the fact that they're going to save money. They're going to be more consistent over time. Mm-hmm. And it'll take far less time to complete a project. This is really important as well if you're in a structure, you know, say it's a heavily regulated industry. And every job goes through a lot of review or um, there's an internal review where someone has to approve the language. All of that 
material is committed to that database so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time there's a new project. So if you have content that repeats itself from one job to the next, translation memory is, is an absolute requirement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the shame is, is that there's, there's been uh, a lot of folks in our industry, especially in the early days of translation memory, that were using it to really just boost their margins. <laughs> okay. It's like, this, is, this is a way we can make more money. This is great. Mm -hmm. We're not going to pay our linguists for this work that's repeated, but we're going to charge the client. Well, of course, that, um, uh, you know, as, as competition uh, increased in the industry and people started to realize they're supposed to get some of these discounts, that 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 practice evaporated. Um, so it, it, it's good to see. It's really empowered the consumer, I think. And the consumer should demand to understand what that is with every estimate, you know, with every project, they should say, well, what's my reuse here? How much are we saving? Mm -hmm. What's the discount level? That has to be fully understood. Yeah, yeah. I get that a lot, too, because people will have a project and they'll say, you know, I have this whole thing, but I mean, we only added, you know, two new paragraphs or only changed a couple new words. And then is it going to be like repeating the project at the same time before? And I mean, it's really great that we have this technology and we're able to say, no, in fact, it'll be like we've already done all the work of simplifying that for you. But there are a couple ideas I wanted to tease out from what you said. So I got three things kind of stood out to me was like comparison. So how you take one document that is translated and then the new document. How do you analyze those? How do you compare those? What level are they analyzed at? The next would be discount. I think that's really interesting. So like, how do you discount them? And does that mean that we're losing nuance? Like if if you say, oh, it's in the memory, it's all good, and then it's a different context, does that mean that we're going to lose nuance and have a kind of clunky translation? And then the third issue is one I forgot, but we'll hopefully <laughs> no be able to pull back up again as we go in through the conversation. Those are both, are, those are all uh, really great questions. And I think maybe... A I good, like that he said all as if I did pull out the third one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, made it. I'm, I'm here to cover you, Patrick. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's really um, a lot of good material there. And I, I think to understand how translation memory works, you have to understand some of the lingo behind it that sure. not everyone understands. So there's different levels of match to the database. So I think that's a smart place to start. So there are context matches. Okay. So context matches are essentially a sentence that is identical to previous work, but not only is it identical, the sentence before and the sentence after are also identical to the last time it appeared. So that's really important because it gives you really a higher level of confidence that the material is truly identical. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's like a very high likelihood that those would be the same. Mm -hmm. So that's the highest level of match. Then there's just 100% match, which is really meaning that context isn't the same, but the sentence is identical. Mm -hmm. Then after that is a fuzzy match, and there's different levels. So a fuzzy match just means that the sentence is similar. So maybe a few words have changed in the sentence. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the industry, we talk about, you know, do you honor an 80% match or a 90% match or at what level? And really just think of it, the lower the percentage, the less the sentence is similar to what mm -hmm. was translated in the past. And then there's also a repetition. So this is important because this is a discount that you should be earning even if you've never done work with a translation services firm. Mm -hmm. So if you have a body of content, maybe you're writing a help system and mm -hmm. it's really just a set of topics to help someone use the piece of software that you're releasing. But there could be instructions in those topics that are similar, 
Mm-hmm. So you might have like 10 topics on how to print, but it's sort of phrased a little bit differently depending on the context. So if there's repetitive sentences there, in other words, it's an identical sentence, but it's within the same build. So in other words, you give me one project, but there's a sentence that repeats itself within that project. Mm-hmm. That should also be discounted. So those are the various levels of Sure. Match. So if, so you're saying that there are all these different levels um, that the uh, levels of match, like how much they match... So how does that relate to how much I get back for those? Or do I get money back? Or how does it work? So here at Argo, the way we do it is we always quote the gross cost, and then we show deductions. So we show deductions for those various levels that we just discussed. Mm -hmm. And that way the client understands, well, gee, what would I have paid if I didn't have translation memory? And now these deductions are coming in for these various levels. So we, we have one of the most transparent estimates in the industry. Um, we've been fortunate enough to benchmark it against some competitive quotes and, and, uh, this is not a boast. This is just what I wanted as a buyer when, when I was buying translation services, I want transparency. Boasting is very encouraged on this podcast. Great. (laughs) Outstanding. So, um, you know, I want to see that, you know, what am I getting in a discount? How many words are hundred percent matches? How many words are repetitions? How many are context? How many are fuzzy? And what does that equal in dollars? So that's how we do it. And as a client, what you can expect is, and I'm going to give some ranges because even we do ranges because it also depends on the file type, um, the content, uh, what level of work the client is comfortable with. Because we have some clients that say, listen, I don't want my 100% matches reviewed by an editor. I'm comfortable with that. Okay. Well, if they are, well, then they would get a larger discount. Mm-hmm. But then we have other clients, highly regulated industries, risky things. You know, we, we have a client that makes defibrillators, so they get the full A service, right? That's a uh-huh. risky product. So then everything is reviewed. In other words, the editor reviews everything, if it's a 10,000-word job but there's 8,000 context matches, they review all 10,000 words just because. And there has to be that level of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really goes into the ranges. So I'm going to give ranges. So a repetition. That could be as much as a full discount. In other words, they pay nothing to maybe a few cents per word. Okay. Um, a fuzzy match. That might be anything from, I would say... Maybe it's around 50 to 80% discount, depending. Sure. And I guess that would depend on how fuzzy it is, because that is... That's also very true, and where you cut it off. Because some people will cut it off, say, at 80%, and say, we don't discount anything below 80, which makes a lot of sense. Because at 80%, you're talking about, you know, a fair amount of the sentence changing. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really... You're really looking at at a new sentence there, really. Exactly. And the gist of all of this is, how much work does the translator have to do on that sentence? Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to extrapolate a per hour rate for the translators. Mm -hmm. So that's really what's going on uh, when we do these analysis and set these levels. And these are all rates that we've negotiated with our vendors, and everybody's on the same page. So, you know, in a a repetition, 100% match, a context match, those are all heavily discounted. Again, those can be anywhere from no cost to, you know, maybe a few cents per word, fuzzy, you know, maybe around half to 80% cost. And, you know, from, from there, and then Mm -hmm. of course the new words, of course, the full cost. Great. And uh, yeah, I think that it is, you know, trying to make sure that our our translators get paid for their work. And then also that our clients are only paying for new work. You know, we want it to, there's certainly some matches. I feel like when you get into the nitty gritty of it, it's like, well, this is kind of a match. Doesn't that count? Mm -hmm. But like really the idea is, like we're trying to avoid making them pay for things, that work that they've already done. It's a great point. I mean, really the idea of translation memory and what it allows customers to do is 
to use your translation budget more wisely. And in talking to customers over the years, what it's allowed them to do is over time decrease the cost of what it takes to service a specific language, country, or group of their customers. Because over time, especially with the software companies, because their manuals tend to be very similar over time. They have a software product, Mm -hmm. they release it, and then they make changes. And the base functionality typically stays the same, so that content is the same. But what it allows them to do is over time, each cost per language is going to go down, Mm -hmm. and then they can add new markets. And that's really the goal. How do we help our clients earn more revenue? And by maximizing that budget, that's really important. It's important to understand how the database is organized. Mm-hmm. So most trans well, not most, all translation memory databases are organized around full stops. So what does that mean? That's either a hard return, a period, an exclamation point, a question mark, a semicolon. And there are there are, you can sort of set the preferences the way you like, mm-hmm. but that's typically out of the box how translation memory systems are set up. Because people will ask, are you going to charge me for the word the every time? And the answer is yes. <laughs> because, of course, you have to understand that in language, you know, we talked about Italian. So, you know, there's multiple ways to say the, of course, depending sure. is it masculine, is it feminine, plural, singular. So you have to determine it's not the same word. The yeah. is not the same every time. That's, that's particularly <laughs> tricky because, uh, you know, in German you have the matching cases. So you have, you know, der, die, das, and then damn dare there's a lot you know there's a lot that goes into that and then some languages don't have that at all it would just you know does it, i like to think of the word count as a way of analyzing the size of a file instead of people will make fun of dickens books for being so long because he got paid by the word originally <laughs> and they're like oh he must have been really you know cranking them out but uh, i think the idea there is that you know Something that is a thousand words is certainly much larger than something that is like a hundred words. Mm-hmm. So that's just a way of wrapping your head around that. So I like to, I like to think of it as not like, oh, I get, you know, eight cents every time I translate this word. But if, if 20% of those words are repetitions, then it makes sense to discount that at the word level. You, you bring up a great point because that's also something that's changed in the industry. So when I first started and when we first, you know, started the firm 23 years ago, um, the technology wasn't where it is now. I mean, we were doing a lot of translation where someone would just send you a manual. They'd send you a hard copy and the translator would open up a word file and just start just typing. Go for it. There was no <laughs> translation memory technology. So we weren't parsing a file and setting up a task sentence by sentence like we do now. You know, instead what we do is, you know, then they would just start typing. My gosh, they could miss sentences. They could do all sorts of things because there's really no control. They're just reading and typing as they go and translating. And the difference there is we would charge on the target and that was the industry standard. So there certainly was some of that in some, uh, I I guess the Dickens method, let's call it that, of uh, the school of thought of translation that, hey, the more verbose I am, the more compensation I'm going to make. And that was really tough as well because it was harder to come up with fixed cost pricing. I can only imagine. Yeah, very difficult. So you'd have to sort of make arrangements with vendors. But now that's sort of uh, obviously a, a moot point because now we base everything on the source word count. And um, yes, of course, you know, the on its own is kind of the wrong way to look at how is this translation going to be created and how am I uh, being charged on every word. And it's important because, you know, we, we have some jobs, we have some clients that do help systems and they're huge, massive help systems. And, you know, they'll send us the whole thing every year. And you have one, it's, a, it's about a 280,000 word build 
But typically, there's only about 20,000 words for us to work on every year Mm -hmm. on the update. So if you just said, well, I just want to understand what you charge per word, that's the wrong question. That's not the right question. You really want to look at project pricing. Because if someone's sort of just giving you a price per word, they're not really factoring in all the issues that go into pricing. Yeah, you're, they're really missing out on the ways that you can be discounted. Even if they tell you like the, the discounts on your fuzzy matches and things like that, pricing, it seems, has really become much more sophisticated in a way mm-hmm. to look at it at different levels. And I'm, I'm really glad we're having this conversation about levels because that's kind of what I meant when I was talking about comparison because I think you can, you can look at things at the word level, which I think we found out is like not such a good idea. And then you can look at things at the level of the whole document, which can be a lot, pretty hard to swallow. And then when we put this into the translation memory, what it does is it chops it up, like you said, at the periods and the question marks and the hard returns. And that's where we get these segments that are a little bit more manageable. But still, at every step along the way, we're trying to engage at every level. We're, mm-hmm. we're reassessing, we're going deeper, we're going higher, and we're, we're doing all this work in order to really treat the document and the project as a, a holistic and consistent thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think it's great that translation memory allows us to do that because I just know for a fact that when I am translating just into a straight word document, that is something that is very difficult to do. Like if I'm just, or if I'm there with like my quill doing it like real St. <laughs> Jerome style. It, it's, it's, it's funny. I think that's a bit of a lost art because especially, you know, Patrick, you're a fair amount younger than I am. So you don't know that other reality. So if you talk to some of our linguists that have been around for a while, they remember that other reality, but it's really just seems like such a distant past because now they rely on the technology. The other thing that people don't understand about translation memory, if you're just thinking about the dollars and cents of it, it's an incredible tool because it allows for consistency in the work because there are often times when we're presented with a very large project mm-hmm. and we might have to use multiple translators, which by the way, we always advise our clients, listen, this is a large project, timeline is extremely short, we're gonna use multiple folks on our team. Well, translation memory is sort of that savior piece that allows that work to be more consistent. Because when you use a cloud-based technology like we use, that means if we have multiple translators in multiple areas of the world, as one, let's say there's a translator in France and one in California, the one, you know, as each translator commits a sentence to that database, it's available in real time. So now without having to message one another or call each other, they can actually comment in the file and they can commit translation units to the memory and they can share that in real time. And that's an incredible uh, development uh, in this technology. And you had mentioned sort of the loss of nuance. Is there a fear of the loss of nuance if you're sort of just overly relying on this database? And, you know, that's where the process kicks in. So, in other words, the translators just don't blindly say, yeah, that's a match, I'm going to move on. If they are, they're not doing their job. I mean, really, the translator is supposed to look at the segment, confirm it, agree that, hey, this is indeed still a match, even though the context might have changed. And then there's also that second step that in any really good, really strong, proven translation process, there's an editing step. So there's an Mm -hmm. editor that comes in, looks at the file, reads it as the user would read Uh it and determine if content is correct. And that speaks to kind of what I was talking about earlier, where throughout the process are engaging on multiple levels and how, you know, we do things kind of at the segment. I think translators are also kind of trying to think of things as a whole, but, you know, it's a little tricky and then you get another pair of eyes on it and they're looking at uh, the editor reads it the way, like you said, the way the user would read it. And I don't know, there's so many times in my life when I've been looking at like 
a piece of content, like maybe like an instruction manual or something that I, I think people are concerned that people won't care very much about. And I see a typo and I think, did anyone read this? Like, is, <laughs> like how did this happen? And it's so obvious. That's, that's actually really important too, because we talk about the fidelity of the source mm -hmm. and that's really important. There's this idea of wordsmithing and I can think of a story when, um, you know, we had a client that, you know, for example, they, they, they tended to write their commands as such, you know, that, uh, so, okay, to print this report, please choose print. You know, so that, that's, okay. that's overly simplistic, but then they changed the whole structure. Like all of their commands were, um, the, the, instead of saying to print, they would uh, make it like printing the report is done from this menu. So essentially, they it really says the same thing, but they rewrote the sentence. Mm -hmm. Now remember, this is a huge, huge help system. So mm -hmm. they did that across the board. So they literally invalidated their whole memory by making this sure. change. So what was great is we were able to pull up a report and show them in context how we were not getting matches anymore. And they were in a multilingual environment. So this was like a seven language release. Mm -hmm. And this would have cost them tens of thousands of dollars to carry forward these changes. Uh -huh. And it was really interesting because the manager said, well, we're going back to the old structure. And, and that's really an important concept as well as that um, when you start to publish in a, a multilingual environment, so you have English and say seven more languages or eight more languages, any wordsmithing or changes mm -hmm. you make to the source on previously translated content is going to cost you money and should be avoided at all costs unless it's absolutely necessary. That sounds terrifying and horribly restrictive. <laughs> so I'm going to. So as an as an author, you're very angry with me. Right <laughs> well, now. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it back because I'm gonna talk about how that sounds like it could be pretty limiting if you if you want to be writing something. Mm -hmm. But I think that anyone who might have that fear and is listening right now would be happy to know that it takes planning from the start in order to prepare yourself for that kind of situation later on. Like if you, you know, commit a bunch of stuff to memory and then make a change later on, it can be really hard to adjust that, which I think is pretty reasonable considering like the complexity of language and having multiple languages and just the, the global environment generally. But if you are sitting down and you know that you have this tool and you want to use it to its best ability, then there are strategies that you can use in order to make it so that you are not being restricted by your TM and you're not being tied down by your TM. Definitely. I, I but mean, you just have to know. You do. And and really, I, I guess the bulk of the material that we do is technical material. Mm -hmm. So we don't really focus on literary translation. And yes, I would imagine any author would be incredibly upset at us, you know, limiting them. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking about a more technical environment where we're writing support documentation for a piece of software, or, you know, maybe it's a website that we've done that has a lot of instructions or use, uh, useful information for the user. You always want to be careful when you're recrafting that stuff because there's just a cost associated. And of course, you're more than welcome to change that, but you just have to really understand that any changes you make are multiplied by the number of languages you publish in and that cost could be really prohibitive to, to a budget. Mm -hmm. And I always tell clients that really the goal is, you know, I feel like we're doing our job if we're helping clients get into more markets, if mm -hmm. they can sell more product, yeah. or if they're doing HR-related materials, if they can engage with more employees mm -hmm. across the world. They have, uh, uh, let's say they have facilities all over the world. So how do you do that? You, you, you maximize your budget. So you want to try your best to not spend 
those hard-earned dollars on material that's already been translated and the changes add limited value. But some changes have to be made. And uh, you, you do bring up a really good point that, you know, what if there are changes or, you know, what if a subject matter expert weighs in and says, uh, you know, we prefer this term over this term when we translate into Japanese or when we translate into French. And translation memory um, and uh, term bases or glossary uh, lists in this technology are uh, relatively easy to maintain. Um, mm-hmm. the, the best practice is if there is a change in terminology to do a global search on the database mm-hmm. and have the linguist make sure that they're implementing that term properly. You know, d- does the term require conjugation? So you can't really just do like a blind search and replace. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not possible. Uh, please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you would have to go in and really find all the instances and adjust the term appropriately. And it sounds a little bit painful, but the, the good news is translation memory allows you to do that so that then those reviewers' markups or those changes that come back from feedback in the field mm-hmm. are done consistently. So that's, that's, you know, I'm curious, I have a question for you because, um, you you know, you, you, your degree is uh, in in the not too distant past (laughs) and you learned these technologies as part of your education. How are those tools taught? How do they teach the use of those tools at the university these days? Oh, sure. Uh, So when I was at CTA, or sorry, CTS, uh, Center for Translation Studies, we had a tools class that it was, it was like terminology and CAT. And so it's where we learned like terminological research. And that was also where we learned how to build term bases and like the philosophical discipline of terminology, which gets like pretty heady actually. And then we learned how to use like build projects in one software, which is kind of like the, the biggest software in the market, SDL Trados. Uh, and so we learned Trados. And then after that, we had a bunch of content level courses. So that was like where you start, you like begin learning tools. And then they had a bunch of content courses where it would be like medical translation and we would do specific research into like how medical translation differs from other kinds of translation. And we would do projects on that, but that whole time we would be using tools and we would also be using different tools. So we would uh, try Memsource or we would try something like WordBee. I never worked with WordBee before I came here, but um, it was, you know, the same kind of situation. And so we would, it was like definitely practical learning because we made all of our own projects for ourselves because it was like a multi-language program. And so it'd be like, oh, you do Spanish, then go find a Spanish article about this and translate it into English and use this tool to do it. And then we would have to like show all our work and do our files and kind of do a write-up on it. And so... It's great. It, yeah, it was, it's really good. And it's like highly integrated into our curriculum. And it is really interesting because I took some translation classes are a little more old school. And those are ones that are taught by... Um, the people who aren't necessarily in the translation department, but are in the language departments. And they will have classes that are like really theory based and they like don't expect you to have anything more than a notebook. And, you know, those are really useful and really interesting, but it really does show that there are like two sides of it. And, you know, if you're, if you're a commercial translator, like these tools are an absolute must. If you are a literary translator, these tools are like verboten. Like you should be having <laughs> your like your your loved one reading the book to you out loud while you're at a typewriter typing the translation. Like that's how literary is like still done. But um, for most translation that you're you're gonna try to use to make more money. I mean, no offense to all the you know authors out there, but if you're if you're trying to do business, then you're you're gonna be using these tools. So they wanted them to be things that we would know. And I, I would say that 
our program is highly tool focused. But you know, that's a great foundation, and that's something that's very different from when we started Argo Translation. Uh, when our co-founder and I, Jackie, started Argo Translation. Uh, well, how old ago. was Trados, which was the first program? How old was Trados when you started? You know, did you even have it? it? Well, we didn't have the DOS-based version, so that was the first one. Oh, and you just blew my brain. Yeah, DOS. <laughs> yes, correct. That was a thing. So it was not it's Spanish a, for two. It was before Windows, so this was really just sort of a command line type of sort of application. And we did not have that one. We had the first Windows-based version, um, and it was really revolutionary. I mean, it was the coolest thing, right? This this comes out and it memorizes your translation. But it was it was interesting because you had sort of the old guard of translators that really didn't want to hear anything about it, um, and then you had sort of the new guard of of translators. So this is interesting technology. It looks like it can make me more efficient. So there was really a lot of resistance. And, and I do have to say that at the time, uh, we had a Trados reseller who had put together a, you know, a pretty attractive package. Um, and, a, and what we did is we went out and bought like 50 licenses and resold them at a much lower price than you could get. Oh, that's interesting. Allow. And we, we did something kind of, kind of cool. Because in order for your translators to be able to use it, I'm used to WordBee where we just email them a login and then they're good. But before cloud-based technologies, oh, yeah, this was you had to like send... You had to like send your translator like a disc. Yeah, actually, I think it might. I think it might have been a CD or oh gosh, who knows? It might have even been on three and a half inch floppies back I then. I don't even know what that yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. So we had to send that with a serial number, and they had to register with Trados. Um, and we did, we did this. I'm great kidding. Thing. I know what a floppy disk yeah, is. Yeah, I figured you did. I just want everyone. I just don't want everyone who listens to the show to hate me for being the millennial. <laughs> the millennial. Yeah, exactly. The old guy and the millennial. So. Um, so you send a serial number, you send a, a, exactly. and a we financed stone tablet. For our translators, yeah, stone tablet and an abacus in case they needed to add anything. Um, we helped finance the purchase of that because, you know, that was, it was big. It was a $1,600 investment for a license at the time. And, um, you know, we, we would help our translators. They say, ah, oh, well, we have a big job coming up and, um, you know, you, you can take it out of the, the next payment. And we were doing these types of deals because... You have to understand 20 years ago as well, $1,600 was significant. It's significant today, but imagine mm-hmm. 20 years ago. So that was you know, not only trying to bridge the gap by say, hey, this is a new tool that we're requiring you to use, but also thank you, you have to give us $1,600. Mm-hmm. I think at the time it was like th- maybe 2800 or so from, you know, directly from SDL. So you know, that was the big thing is that there's this big cost. It's going to change the way I work. Um, it was really... Uh, really an interesting time in the industry. And there were a, a lot of folks. I can remember back when I was still at the medical device manufacturer and we had some translators that we managed. There was one gentleman who said, you know, I, I think this is my time. I'm, I'm actually going to retire. Wow. <laughs> he actually said, now that this is a requirement to do this type of work, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to hang it up. And he, he was in his late 60s and maybe it was time, but I, I didn't know that the tool needed to force him out of the business. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's really quite interesting. I think that um, I think that translators, for very good reasons, have been a little suspicious of the technology. But I think that most people that I've encountered, and when I when I go to like professional meetings and things like that, are are really really into it. And I think that 
like one of the things that we didn't talk about because we were a little more client facing in our focus is like as a translator it is like one of the things that I do is I work for a show and I translate the credits of the show and it's you know sound design by so and so blah 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 and so the names will change but like the thing that they're doing doesn't change so it's like really just kind of tedious and like annoying and I get down to like the last 60 segments of my project and then I'm like oh coast and it's just so easy or like there's just so many examples of things that are just really just annoying to do that that memory yeah I mean that brings up a good point because there's actually that other aspect remember we talked about typing off of a hard copy and I can tell you the most difficult thing to do is a parts manual because you have these long digit of SKUs or part numbers and you really had to double check to make sure the editor had the editor and the project manager had a lot of QA there to make sure that there was no change where now in current the current tools because you're parsing the source file you can just say copy because if that part number comes up in the job you can just say copy and by the way these tools also allow that if something is numeric based you know the the client doesn't get charged for that Mm -hmm. because of that accommodation you literally just hit copy and you know a a 12 digit or 24 digit serial number or part number will just come over and it's great because you know that nothing's happened to it so it, it really does help from a QA function and there's that is actually a great point is that there's also a bunch of QA built in to the translation memory tools. And I know you use that in, in your day-to-day stuff is, mm-hmm. you know, there's tag checking, there's spell checking, there's, um, you know, endpoint checking. There was a period used. If there was a period in English, is there a period in the translation? And sometimes that generates false positives, but those are... But it's always good to check it. I mean, it's better to have absolutely. a false positive than a false negative. Yes, absolutely. You brought up a point, which I thought was interesting, Patrick. You talked about... That for the most part, you know, the acceptance is on the positive side. But there are some ways to abuse these tools, too. And I think we're going to hopefully do another segment on machine translation. But some of the tools have machine translation built in. And it might be something like Google or the Bing engine or or one of the other engines that's out there. The Microsoft engine, I should say. And um, there are some translators that will use machine translation and clean it up. And, um, you know, that... That should be frowned upon unless the client knows about it. Like no one should be using that technology unless the client understands the pedigree of the work. And, and we're firm believers of that. And I think we could probably do two shows on MT. I would love to talk about MT. I would love to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of MT. That's going to be the name of that podcast. Because there, there is a lot of good, bad, good stuff and there is a lot of bad stuff. And there is absolutely a lot of ugly stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we shouldn't wait into that too much now. But I guess if we're going to – we should explain – what is this cat situation, computer-assisted translation? That is really, it is one program that can integrate a number of different tools, including machine translation and if you want translation memory or the vice versa. And so I think it's important to kind of unpack that idea that Mm -hmm. the cat really is sort of just like, the cat is, some people call them tents, which are like translation environment. Yes. Which I think is, Rather cute, but uh, well, know, it's I, like a fun. I, I love the acronyms. We've become so accurate. I mean, I mean, think every business today, but yeah. the translation uh, world has plenty of them. It's it's yeah, um, yeah. So the tent one is interesting. But yeah, it's a good it's, point. I think it's a good way to think about it. So you know, it's a roll up. You know, essentially the right the tool can bring together all sorts of other tools that make a translator's life easier. Oh yeah, so there's some plugin wizards out there who can just really load up their mm-hmm. you know, Swiss Army knife, their SDL account. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if someone says cat, you know, that means 
that they are just using technology in a serious way. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be using translation memory or that they're going to be using machine translation. They will likely be using translation memory. I don't know why you wouldn't, but like it is, they're certainly not synonyms. So Right. There's plenty of ways to use these tools and each of the providers goes about some of these things in a different way. You know, we, we could certainly go on about the standards and that that's likely a different show as well. We, you know, get into the XLIF standard and the TMX standard and TBX and transferability mm-hmm. of these resources. Um, I think it might be good to touch on those though, at least the ownership idea. Um, in terms oh, of those who, were, who owns the memory? Those are a couple things I wanted to talk about. So was this the third item on your list? You know what? I remember <laughs> <laughs> it was IP. Um, oh, because that is good point. An interesting topic because uh, you know, you pay for the translation. And so does that mean that you own the memory? Uh, so I will pose that question now. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that would be an interesting one. It might be fun to even get a couple other agency owners in on that discussion. I don't know that there's unanimous thought in the industry on who owns the translation memory, but it's a great way um, <laughs> if you're around a bunch of agency owners and you sort of want to get some conversation going you could just make a statement one way or the other and see the oh great yeah is this sounds like a nerd cocktail party but yes um Mm -hmm. if 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 you would talk to agency owners they're divided you know who owns the ip so patrick's question is if you do this translation exercise and you use this translation memory in the background and i say can i have a copy of the database is the answer yes or no should there be a cost um and i know we have a very specific idea on that and and ours is is that the memory itself is the property of the client we're just stewards of it and the costs that we charge include the management of that technology Mm -hmm. and unless we specifically say that it's not your property which we don't every client would have access to a copy of it and 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 maybe we'll just briefly touch on the fact that there is a file format called tmx Mm -hmm. which is an xml based standard that summarizes all of these translation activities into a database that can then be imported into another tool. So what I would suggest to clients is that if you aren't already doing this with your vendors, just ask if you can have a copy periodically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good practice and it really keeps everyone honest. Like the last thing we want is to keep someone handcuffed to us because we have this translation memory as, as we're holding it hostage. You have to so, stay that, that's right. not our That's not our approach. Hypothetical. Mm-hmm. I have decided I can't stand you anymore. I've decided <laughs> to make my true feelings known. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I don't want to see your face. But when I quote, when I have you quote a document, mm-hmm. it is way cheaper because of deductions mm-hmm. than this other company who has another person who I like way more. And I think they'll do a way better job. But I just can't afford to make the switch because they don't have any memory. They don't have any reductions. Like, can I snag that TMX, mm-hmm. bring it over to them, and then leverage that savings with that company? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's um, part of the reason you want to discuss this up front. I, I don't think you want to work with someone for a few years and then bring it up. You should really ask up front. I just want to understand, can I have my translation memory periodically? Can I have it every quarter or can I have it twice a year? I would just like an export of that memory. And that's really important to work out up front. And I actually don't 
again, don't have any problems with that. I think we're secure enough in the services we provide and what we do for our clients that we want them to stay for other reasons, not because we're holding them captive. Sure. And we do run into that exact scenario a lot. In other words, we'll get someone come over and they're a new client and they give us a project and say, my goodness, I don't understand why you're 50% higher than my other vendor. And we always have to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, how long have you been with them? And do you know if they're using translation memory technology? And that's where we really the idea of this podcast and this this specific episode has come is that most people say, I don't really know what you're talking about, but they're less expensive. <laughs> well, it's likely because of translation sure. memory. So if you're looking for a new vendor and you want to quote on equal footing, you have to do one of two things. You have to price compare on something that's completely new and you know doesn't exist in anything you've ever done in the past. Or you have to obtain a copy of that translation memory and then provide it to the new vendor and then see where the prices land. And, and, and of course, I know there's a lot of firms that won't agree with what I'm saying, but I think that's really a good practice and an honest practice. You know, people should want to st stick with your company because they want to, not because they're held captive. And, and anyway, I think that that's, that's an important point. I think something that we should do in each of these episodes as well, Patrick, is talk a little bit about just summarize hopefully what was learned in the session. We want these to be valuable sure. for people. So I guess what, you know, what are some of the key takeaways uh, for, for translation memory? So you're, you're a buyer of translation. What are some of the key takeaways? What are some things I should know about translation memory? Summarize in five words. <laughs> We're going to do this. I'm going <laughs> to okay. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, translation memory is a tool. You know what? That's actually pretty good. It is. Yeah, no, I because feel, it's, it's, I really thought I wasn't going to yeah, make it. I mean, that was really good. That was, I, that was well thought. It wasn't at all, Patrick. <laughs> all right. No, but it I does bring up a good point. It brings up a good point that really there are so many providers out there using this tool in such a different way that actually your sentence is on target. In that that's sense. exactly what I was thinking. You know, it's is that really hard thinking? to pin yeah. down. But if I were to think of a couple really important things, I would say uh, translation memory is not the same thing as machine translation. Mm -hmm. Translation memory is something that I should know about and have access to. Translation memory is something that can allow me to save time and money on projects that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And um, translation memory makes Patrick's life easier. And, uh, and the customers. And the customers. And ownership. I think one of the key things yeah. is to have that conversation early, upfront. upfront and early with your vendor. Who owns this? How's it going to work going forward? Um, how is it going to help me? And how are you going to show me how it helps me on every estimate? And one more last thing. If you know that you're going to be working with a translation memory from the get-go, you can create strategies in the way that you write things so that you can get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to put some valuable information on our webpage mm -hmm. relative to translation memory. So if this was the 101 class, we're going to put the 201 class sure. up on our site. So we've got some ebooks that you might find interesting, and we'll put those on our site so you can um, read a bit further. That sounds excellent. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm Patrick. And I'm Peter. And you've been listening to Translation Confidential. We will get you next time and talk about another very exciting topic in the world of commercial translation.